Section 9 of Modern England by Oscar Browning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Book 9. The Earl of Beaconsfield, 1874 to 1880. Book 9, Chapter 1. England and Russia in Europe. The session of 1874 passed quietly under the new government. Its principal work was the Public Worship Regulation Act, introduced by the Archbishop of Canterbury. The object of this act was to restrain the extreme high church clergy from using ritual which imitated the ceremonies of the Romish church against the wishes of their parishioners. It was strongly opposed by Lord Salisbury and Mr. Gladstone but Mr. Disraeli came forward in defense of it at the call of Sir William Harcourt. Experience has shown that the act has effected less good and done less mischief than its friends and enemies expected of it. The choice of a successor to Mr. Gladstone, who announced his retirement in January 1874, was not made without difficulty. Lord Hartington was preferred to Mr. Forster chiefly because he could more easily make way for the return of his former leader the new prime minister cared more for foreign than for domestic affairs the next five years of his government were filled with events which brought home to englishmen the imperial position of their country but which also made them realize the burden of responsibility which attaches to it on november eighth eighteen seventy five the Prince of Wales landed at Bombay, the first step of a royal progress through India. In the same month, the government purchased four millions worth of shares in the Suez Canal. The control of the India office over our great dependency was made more complete, and on the resignation of Lord Northbrook, Lord Lytton was sent as Governor-General to carry out the new policy. Early in the following year, the Queen assumed the title of Empress of India, with a proviso that it should not be used in this country. These events showed the presence of a new spirit in our government, which was regarded by some with enthusiasm, by some with ridicule, by others with dismay. In the summer of 1875, an insurrection against Turkey broke out in the provinces of Herzegovina and Bosnia attempts were made by the european powers to repress it but next year the rebellion spread to bulgaria and was put down by the turks with terrible atrocity mr gladstone left his retirement to denounce these horrors and called for the expulsion of the turkish government from europe but england was not disposed to surrender her traditional policy of maintaining turkey as a barrier against the advance of russia to the bosphorus servia and montenegro now declared war against their suzerain lord salisbury attended a conference at constantinople in which the great powers endeavoured to avert the coming conflict it was of no avail in june eighteen seventy seven the russian armies crossed the danube and in spite of the gallant defence of plevna by the turks were in january eighteen seventy eight almost within sight of the towers of santa sophia war between england and russia seemed imminent 
Mr. Disraeli, now the Earl of Beaconsfield, asked for a credit of six millions and sent the English fleet to the Dardanelles. The Russians made with the Turks the Treaty of St. Stefano, which created a large Bulgaria defined by her historic limits with a port on the Aegean. Lord Carnarvon and Lord Derby left the ministry. A contingent of Indian troops was summoned to Europe. Prince Bismarck now interfered as a mediator. A congress was summoned at Berlin, at which England was represented by Lord Beaconsfield and Lord Salisbury. The results of the final treaty were not favorable to Turkey, nor humiliating to Russia. Romania, Serbia, and Montenegro were declared independent. Bulgaria was confined to the north of the Balkans, but the addition of Sofia held out the hope that the new principality might spread down the valley of the Maritza. Greece obtained little that she had desired. Bosnia and Herzegovina were handed over to Austria. By two previous conventions, Russia recovered the part of Bessarabia which she had ceded in 1856 and the port of Batum, while Turkey handed over the island of Cyprus to England on payment of a yearly tribute. Lord Beaconsfield, on his return to England, was received with acclamation and was able to announce that he had brought back peace with honor. Book Nine, Chapter Two, England and Russia in Asia in the far east england and russia advancing one from the south the other from the north with the inevitable progress of civilization against barbarism had narrowed the distance between their frontiers they were divided by the debatable land of afghanistan the home of a tumultuous and independent people should this country be absorbed by russia or by england or should it separate the two empires as a neutral zone in July 1878, a Russian ambassador arrived at Kabul, the capital, and was well received by Shir Ali, the emir, although the reception of an English agent had been refused the year before. For the sake of English prestige, this envoy must be withdrawn, or an English embassy admitted. In August, Sir Neville Chamberlain, with the following of a thousand men, demanded entrance at the Khyber Pass. It was refused, and he returned to Peshawar. The English government replied that unless their ambassador was received before November 21st, Afghanistan would be occupied in force. Submission came too late. The country was invaded by three columns. The British troops entered Kabul, the emir left it, and soon afterwards died. In May 1879, his successor Yakub Khan signed the Treaty of Gandamak, by which the English, on payment of a yearly subsidy of £60,000, received the scientific frontier which the new policy demanded. Afghanistan was guaranteed from attack, and the British resident was admitted to Kabul. But the disaster of 1841 was soon repeated to a generation which had forgotten it. In September, the British resident, Sir Louis Cavagnari, was massacred by the populace with sixty-eight of his attendants. Yakub Khan escaped to India. General Robert soon entered Kabul as an avenger, but the fiery Pathans rose in insurrection with forces four times as large as his, 
they forced him to retire and he did not recover kabul after severe fighting till christmas eve after a few more struggles the country was subdued our first policy was to separate kandahar and to place it under an independent prince with an english resident while we sought for some chief of the royal house who might be strong enough to make peace with us such a one was found in abdurrahman a direct descendant of dost mohammed negotiations begun with him by lord lytton were completed by a new viceroy under a changed government the dream of a scientific frontier was given up we were content to secure a friendly ruler whom we could trust and we restored to his crown the two priceless jewels of kandahar and herat book nine chapter three south africa the cape of good hope first colonized by the dutch has been english for more than one hundred years the dutch farmers called boers have been gradually driven into the interior and native states have grown up in the midst of the two nations the transvaal republic an independent boer state was annexed by england in eighteen seventy seven from a mistaken idea of the wishes of the inhabitants this brought us into collisions with the zulus a race trained to war like the ancient spartans whose king setuayo had hitherto been well disposed to the english government sir bartle freer made governor of the cape in eighteen seventy seven considered the existence of this nation of warriors as a standing danger to english interests on a slight dispute the country was invaded in the hope of a speedy conquest but on january twenty second eighteen seventy nine lord chelmsford's camp at izandlana was surprised by a force of twenty five thousand zulus and utterly destroyed a disaster only partially retrieved by the gallant defence of rourke's drift by chard and bromhead reinforcements were hurried up from england ceylon and st helena naked savages however brave and well trained could not contend against disciplined troops still the struggle was severe and it was not until the end of august that setuayo was captured prince louis son of napoleon the third who had been reluctantly allowed to join the army was killed in a reconnaissance by a handful of zulus the battle of ulundi which put an end to the zulu war had been won by lord chelmsford but he had already been superseded by sir garnet wolseley the new general put down the native chiefs morosi and sikuni but he could not persuade the boers of the transvaal to submit the cost of these wars made the government unpopular imperial policy had been nowhere a success its brilliancy did not compensate for its burdens a series of bad harvests had made money scarce attacks on foreign policy were coupled with demands for an extended suffrage the popularity of the government was on the wane the distress fell with a special heaviness on ireland where large rents had in many cases to be paid to absentee landlords for property which the tenants had improved a cry was raised get rid of the landlords and mr parnell founded a land league for the purpose of buying them out constitutional agitation was unfortunately accompanied by dishonesty and outrage 
which were met by the government with severe methods of repression. Parliament was now approaching its close, and in the autumn recess platforms resounded with the war cries of the coming fray. Mr. Gladstone led the attack by standing for Midlothian and conducted a fortnight's campaign of incessant speaking. The Queen opened Parliament in person on February 15, 1880. The royal speech told of peace in Afghanistan and South Africa, and of the success of the Treaty of Berlin. It announced no measures of importance, but the dissolution which followed in March was unexpected. In the issue before the country, Lord Beaconsfield took his stand on the necessity of imperial policy and denunciation of home rule. Lord Hartington put forward the stability of liberal tradition, and Mr. Gladstone vigorously foiled the policy of his rival. The elections were a surprise to both parties, but they spoke with no uncertain voice. The new Parliament contained 349 Liberals as against 351 Conservatives in the old. The Conservative opposition was now 243, while the Liberal opposition in the late House had been 250. The numbers of the Home Rule Party had risen from 51 to 60. Lord Beaconsfield determined not to meet the new Parliament, and only delayed his resignation until the Queen had returned from the Continent. She first sent for Lord Hartington as leader of the opposition in the Commons, but on the representation of himself and Lord Granville, summoned Mr. Gladstone. He consented to form a government, taking for himself the offices of First Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer. The principal members of his former cabinet returned with him to power. The Radical Party was represented by Mr. Chamberlain at the Board of Trade, Mr. Fawcett at the Post Office, and Sir Charles Dilke as Under Secretary for Foreign Affairs, Sir William Harcourt at the Home Office, Mr. Mundella in charge of education, and Mr. Bright as Chancellor of the Duchy, gave a broad foundation of confidence to the new government. End of Section 9